Welcome to Movie Maker. I'm Tim Malloy, and our guest today, Ali Afshar, has one of the wildest origin stories in Hollywood, and he's about to lay it all out much better than I ever could. But here's the short version. After his family came to the United States following the Iranian Revolution of 1979, he had a childhood with a mix of tragedy and extreme distraction, distractions that included racing cars and wrestling. He soon made his way into acting, getting credits and projects from Saved by the Bell, The New Class, to Three Kings, to Godzilla, to NCIS. And he turned to producing in 2011 and has made a name for himself with films about wrestling, driving, and Christmas, often working in a converted barn in his adopted hometown of Petaluma, California. His latest project is the new TV series Casa Grande, which he co-created and which debuts today, May 1st, on Amazon's Freebie. By the way, is anyone watching Jury Duty on Freebie? It's outstanding. Besides producing Casa Grande, Ali is also one of the actors on the show, a bilingual upstairs-downstairs family drama set in the farmlands of Northern California. At the end of this interview, by the way, he's going to mention his company's website. That website is esxproductions.com. And so, I'm going to let our guests do most of the talking today, as I always try to do. Without further ado, here is Ali Afshar. So... I read up on your IMDb profile um, just to sort of get to know you and your story a little bit before we started. It's one of the most detailed I've ever seen. And even the first two paragraphs before you get to Hollywood, can you tell me about your life growing up, um, your family's backstory, your backstory, and how it eventually leads into acting? Sure, sure. I, I'm going to pop on my IMDb just to look at it so I can see what you're talking about. I haven't, I haven't been on IMDb in a minute. Um, so I was born in Iran. Those, these are the things I can say for sure, because I know these things. So born in Iran, but we had to leave Iran. It was dual fold. One was because of the Iranian uh, revolution uh, back in the late 70s, where um, unfortunately Iran went through this, you know, horrible revolution and it turned into this, you know, Islamic state and religious ran, which anybody who was anybody and could left. So we escaped Iran. And at the same time we escaped, my mother was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Mm. So we were like, she had six months to live. So mm. we were like, and I was only, I was a young kid. So we came to California, uh, to Northern California, because UCSF, U- University of California, San Francisco, had the Moffitt Center, which was a full-blown um, uh, specialist in cancer. So sorry mm. if I'm getting too much detail. You can edit it oh, down. Oh, <laughs> cut it down, cut it down. But uh, um, uh, uh, so we went to Northern California to this small town called Petaluma, and we had a little ranch and uh, my mother would go to San Francisco for her therapies. And fortunately that six months, she fought it with 17 major tumor removal surgeries through 12 years. So she made it all the way until I was about 15, 16 years old. Uh, that's when she passed away. But being in Petaluma was really tough at the beginning because in addition to the Iranian revolution, if you guys have seen, if any of your viewers or listeners have seen like the movie Argo, the Oscar winning Warner Brothers movie Argo, there was a huge Iranian hostage crisis. So Iran had taken hundreds of American hostages. So the last thing you want to do is be an Iranian guy at that time in this small little American town, <laughs> anywhere in America. Mm-hmm. So a little bit rough and tough there being Iranian and having having your country uh, um, have hostages. That was, it was really tough. And that's kind of um, what I'm jumping forward led to making our big breakthrough movie that got us here to Warner Brothers called American Wrestler The Wizard, which was my story about coming from Iran into this small town, but then, uh, you know, overcoming all the prejudice and then realizing that people are still people. And even though they're scared at the beginning, they're still good. And having the school community, the town ultimately turn around and, and accept you and love you. And I did it through uh, through wrestling. I was a state championship finalist wrestler and did all that. So it's a real feel-good movie. We had Oscar winner John Voight in it. We had William Fickner in it. I played my own uncle in it. It, it scored off the charts. It scored a 92 in the top two boxes of the test screening. And that's what really got Warner's attention. Um, so but coming back into my life. So was in uh, Northern California. Uh, always loved, you know, Hard and going fast and bicycles and a lot of stuff that you'll see that are themes in our current movies. And then uh, once my mother passed away, I moved to Los Angeles um, and uh, started starting a career. My older brother was a stuntman. So I got an agent right away and I got my first acting role on a TV show. Sorry. Oh, 
let me cut in there. There's a lot of action going on around your family home. I mean, your brother becomes a stuntman. You're doing BMXs. You're racing cars. Uh, you eventually start a a racing related business in addition to this business. Just talk about your life. Why, why is there so much speed around you? You know what? I think it's because it's a good, great question. So in high school, my mom died exactly one month before my 16th birthday. So when I turned 16, my dad had said, if you get a 3.5 GPA or no, sorry, 3.3 GPA, I'll get you any car you want. So I did that. And I was like, great. I want this Porsche 911, da, 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 da. And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. Any car under $5,000. I was like, what? <laughs> I did not read the fine print. Like, what, what is it, $5,000? So I ended up buying a 1967 Chevy Camaro. And, oh. then, and then subsequently, my dad had been in America for 12 years now. He had lost all his property and stuff in Iran. And then my mom had passed away. So he went back to Iran and I was left living at my friend's homes because my two older brothers, I'm the youngest of three brothers. They're, they're very action and motorcycles and cars and stuff, but they were young themselves. Like they were like 19 and 21 or 20 and 22. They were young. So they really couldn't take care of a 15, 16 year old. So I actually moved uh, back to uh, my friend's house in Petaluma and lived with his parents growing up, which is the actual house we shot American Wrestler in. A whole nother trivia for you. So, you know, whatever, 25 years later. But um, but so going to school, having just lost your mom, having your dad leave. And my dad had said he was just going to leave for three months. They held him by gunpoint at the airport. He didn't come back for six years. So I was like, you know, we were for a, went to my friends, finished high school at two different friends' homes. But racing cars, street racing cars. And wrestling was my aggression. Like it was the only way I could get out the, the my teen my teenage issues, angst, whatever you want to call it. All the aggression, all the sadness, all the sorrow combined with like hormones and growing and all the crap you go through as a teenager. And I didn't have the luxury to um, get drunk or party or get stoned or do drugs because I was a guest at somebody else's house, living out of a suitcase. Basically, all of my junior and senior year. So I didn't. I didn't party with the boys. I went to the parties, but I never got in trouble. I was always a designated driver, or I was always the one selling cups for five bucks to tap the keg in some street party in the middle of some hills and on I Street in Petaluma, and starting business there. And um, but I used to street race a lot, and I used to uh, wrestle really aggressively. So those were the two things. They got me through high school, came to L.A. Between uh, the street racing scene was really big in L.A. in the 90s. And unfortunately, you know, I, I got arrested five times for street racing. I, <laughs> I, I escaped more than I got arrested. But, you know, and, and between that and the occasional acting gig, I made enough money to put myself through college. So I actually had a degree in biology. So uh, um, oh, it's kind of, yeah, it's had a degree in bio. But as a kid, I always thought, very cheesy here, uh, Tim. You're going to laugh. But as a kid, I always thought, hey, I used to tell my mom, hang on, I'll become a doctor and I'll fix you. Mm-hmm. And then when I when my mom passed, my cousin was like, hey, your dad's educated. Your mom was educated. Neither of your two older brothers went to college. Just do it for your dad. Like, have one of you guys get a degree. So I just finished. I got a degree in environmental biology and microbiology, whatever. So I finished that. But at that time, I, I, I really got heavier into acting and racing. And then I literally acted full time for about eight years until I won a big race, an official race with a Subaru in 2001 and uh, got invited to a local Subaru dealership because the, the car made the cover of this magazine. They said, hey, come to this dealership, show, show us your car. I get there and uh, I don't, I don't want to bore you with the story, but the CEO of Subaru was there and I didn't know he was there and I was kind of making fun of him. And uh and he wrote me a letter the next week and said, hey, would you like to come to New Jersey for lunch? I actually have the letter framed right here in my office. And, oh. and uh, we flew over to New Jersey for lunch, which was actually a big meeting. Right then, a factory sponsorship with Subaru was born. So I ended up racing for Subaru on and off since 2003 now. We have the world's fastest Subaru. We're an 18-time NHRA champion Subaru. Um, here, I'll show you. That's here, too. You see that? Oh, Those wow. are- those are NHRA awards you see over there. Looking at an amazing trophy case. Some statues, yeah, there's 18 of them. And our team was really, really successful with that. And um, But I kind of missed acting. 
So, so now you've crept forward to like the, you know, 2008, 2010. I was like, yeah, I want to come back and act again. It's so funny because everything kept coming back to Warner Brothers. Um, I, my first audition back from Warner Brothers was for a movie called He's Just Not That Into You. Mm-hmm. And I auditioned for it. And the lady's like, well, that, can you try this other part? And I auditioned for the bartender role, which was a fun role. But I didn't get it. And, and, but in the room, she goes, can you, can you try this other role? And uh, I look at it and it says... And by the way, I'm like proud of cold reading. I'm like, I can cold read like no other. Watch this. I'm going to dazzle them. I look it down and it says, all gay, well-built American. <laughs> I'm like, fuck. Oh, I can't say that. It's like, what? <laughs> I looked up. I said, I'm not any of these four. She's like, it's okay. Just try it. Just try it. And I remember my acting teacher, uh, which happens to be gay. He was like, if you ever do a gay role, tip up your nose. I'm like, what? Oh. He's like, you So I'm like this. I just came to me on this and I did this scene. No callback, booked it, worked on the movie for a couple of weeks. It was great. It's called, it's called He's Just Not That Into. It's a really big Warner movie, uh, you know, with like Jennifer Aniston and Scarlett Johansson and Ben Affleck. I had a nice little role that I played a character named Skip. But um, other than acting, in my racing world, we also worked with Aston Martin a little bit just to keep messing things up. We built a whole line of Aston Martins uh, in, 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 for a few years with these supercharged faster ones because we're all about making cars faster. Oh, by the way, and during all this, when I was racing, I had my own company to comment on what you said. It was called Easy Street Motorsports, which ended up abbreviating to ESX Motorsports. So mm-hmm. we would build hot rods and Subarus and, and Aston Martins. One of the Aston Martin customers um, w- said, hey, I don't know you're an actor. If you ever want to make a movie, let me know. And I was like, you're a banker. Like, I don't need a home loan. He's like, no, you're a moron. I'm a film financier. I was like, what? And then come to find out, he's one of my great friends. He's like, he financed all the Twilight movies and John Wick, and he's big, one of the biggest independent film financiers. And he introduced me to a couple of friends. And within three months of that meeting, I made my first movie, Born to Race, which is about a kid racing a Subaru, getting in trouble street racing, and then becoming pro. It's basically one of my chapters of life. So um, fast forward, raced full-time for Subaru for about a decade, uh, uh, 60 events a year, missed acting, came back, booked that role. My buddy, uh, his name is Jared, Jared Underwood, the film financier, um, said this, uh, we made this first movie. And then that was the first one. And and that led to a sequel, which then led to a partner coming in a high net worth individual for us, Lucas of Lucas Oil. And the messages he wanted to give, I said, you know what, they'd be perfect for movies. So we did 13 movies together there. And we just, I mean, fast forward 2015, we made our that American Wrestler, um, the one about my life that I mentioned. And we just finished the 23rd movie just a week ago. So in the last, you know, seven, eight years, we've cranked out a lot of movies. And our first series, Casa Grande, comes out May 1st, which I'm sure you're aware of too. This is the first time we dipped our toes into series. So 23 movies, it's five, five episode limited series for a season one. Uh, hopefully it does well and people like it and we can do a season two and beyond. So that's it in a nutshell. Um, I don't know. Uh, oh, you know, another cool, cool thing is after 30 years, that ranch in Petaluma that we lived on. Yeah. So my dad sold it in the 80s. So I bought it back after 30 years in 2018, 19. Oh, and so you were able to buy back your childhood. That's everybody's dream, isn't it? Wow. Yeah. yeah. So I bought that back. That's where I built the soundstage. We've done 17 of our 23 movies and our series in Petaluma. Um, we've had everybody in the town. We use all the town as back a lot. Um, we, we're going to do the big premiere here in Hollywood, but we also do a little baby thank you premiere on May 3rd, two days after, with the red carpet and everything at the Boulevard Cinemas and David Corkill Cinemas. It's got a, a 14, 14 screen cineplex there. So uh, we get to we get to do a little thank you to that town. You know? I'd love to drop in a couple little footnotes to the story you just told, which is incredible. Your first acting role, is it Saved by the Bell? What yeah. what was it like being on Saved by the Bell, which for people a little younger than me is just this touchstone that they're obsessed with? Um, there's so much. It was the show. It was this show. And my, mine was Saved by the Bell, the new class. So I was in the original then. But it's kind of funny because all our friends, all our little friend circle had all had parts on Saved by the Bell. We all had something on Saved by the Bell. So when I got that audition, it was like, we're looking for an Italian kind of Fonzie, if people remember Happy Days, like a Fonzie Italian guy that knows how to work on cars for an auto shop scene. I'm like, if I don't get this, like I'm quitting. Like this is this is my job. So I went, and his name was Grease. 
you know, actually we put it on our website. It's on our website. If you want to see the YouTube video, it's really cute. Just a cute little scene. But I didn't know anything about acting. I've never acted before, ever. Not a stitch, not in a play, not in a movie, not in a class or anything. Because uh, I, I just, I did one of my first auditions. Um, I didn't know what sides were. So when they said, oh, there's just your sides on the table. I walked to the table. I was looking. I had no idea sides meant a script. And the casting director walked by and goes, oh, you found your sides. Here they are. And I was like, oh, okay. And I just, you know, like a kid, you just believed it, imagined it, fully committed to it. I booked it, went to set. And then, you know, we're shooting live audience and everything. And and uh, it was a nice couple couple days. And But the first take was like, okay, and in three. And they don't say the two and the one. I didn't know that. I'm just waiting for like action or go or something. So I'm standing there and cut, cut, cut. Okay, Ali, whenever you're ready, you know, and, and there's a background actor there. He goes, count down to like one and zero silently and then go. That's your action. I was like, oh, thanks, dude. So then they're like, and four, three. Hey, Greece. And I did it. It was fun. I totally didn't understand the direction the director was giving me. Now I kick myself in the ass because I'm like, fuck, I knew exactly what he was saying. I couldn't <laughs> I didn't know he was trying to give me a couple of line readings because that was brand new, but that was it. That started it. And then from then it went to a lot of little roles on these shows. And I um, did a big guest star on one of the Power Rangers spinoffs. Then they brought me in and said, can you do a voiceover role? I'm like, no, I don't do voiceovers. They're like, no, no, just use your own voice. We've auditioned like 200 people. I'm Saban, doesn't like any of them. It's for the Phantom Ranger. He's like the secret head of the Rangers. I'm like, okay, I went in, I booked it four years. I'm the voice of the Phantom Ranger. And it's just this voice you hear right now. Yeah. And just kept, you know, just acting on a, a lot of CBS shows, the agency. I did my first lead with Chuck Norris in Texas called President's Man, A Line in the Sand. And then a bunch of episodes of Jack, a bunch of episodes of NCIS and a bunch of kids shows. And I don't, you, you got to look at my MVD. I don't even know. That. I don't know it as well. But for the last, you know, 27 movies i've been in like half of them i've been in maybe a third or half of my own movies but um that's my story <laughs> i feel like we're covering all the bases today because i just published a story about the movie how to blow up a pipeline and then you mentioned um your financer in the oil industry who mm -hmm. wanted to sort of spread a particular message what messages did he want to convey through his films so first he's, his name is forrest lucas really really great guy um, he owned like the Lucas Oil Stadium where the Indianapolis Colts play, where the Super Bowl was. That that Lucas, not George Lucas, the other Lucas. <laughs> and um, he he wants to like pro America. Like it's kind of weird to say that with the Trump bullshit going on now. It's like it's almost like a bad thing now, but it's really not a bad thing because America is very. It, there's, I mean, in Iran, look what's happening there right now. You can't even women can't walk without their scarf. So. I think one of the big benefits is my belief in America. Like, hey, look, if you work hard, you stay down, you can do anything you want in this country. And he believed that too, because he came from nothing. He, he became a self-made billionaire on his own. So it was like, like just pro-American dream stuff, whether it was like farmers or ranchers. A lot of our movies were about that. Like we did Pray for Rain with Jane Seymour or Running Wild about the wild horse issue in, with Sharon Stone and, and we did Bennett's War about a veteran that gets hurt and then has to get back on a dirt bike and race motorcycles because he has to get money for his family to save the ranch. Simple stories, but it was all about the American dream. And um, and being Iranian, it was really interesting that both of us saw eye to eye in that. And, uh, you know, like our, our motto was shed a tear, but leave with a smile. And um, and then I said, Forrest, we also have this huge opportunity because we own, Forrest owns all these series. He owns like the Lucas Oil Off-Road Series, the Lucas Oil Motocross Series, the Lucas Oil Boat Racing Series. So I was like, let's start doing action films because honestly, those those uh, message, th those more like feel-good movies were harder to monetize where we were like, wait, we got this huge assets in racing and dirt bikes and cars and boats and all these dragsters and stuff. Let's do some action movies. So we ended up doing like Lady Driver, Dirt, uh, Wheels of Fortune, all on Netflix now. Um, you know, these car racing ones that were like basically big, Lucas Oil integration movies. And in the middle, we'd throw an American wrestler or Pray for Rain or the stand at Paxton County, true story about a, a farmer done wrong in South Dakota. You know, so we would throw that at Chris McDonald in it and um, uh, Jacqueline Taboni from the Showtime to the L Word. And, you know, Chris McDonald, he's, you know, shooter McGavin, everybody's done. He's big on hacks now. He kind of blew up again on the, on the hack show. So, um, you know, and then we did like a couple fighting movies, the sequel to American Wrestler, which was Fictitious American Fighter. And then we do with Tommy Flanagan, and then we did um, Born a Champion with Dennis Quaid. Uh, so you know, we so we kind of mix those up. But then 
in, in 2019, uh, that relationship with Forrest kind of ended. And then I went on my own and I did our first Christmas movie. And yeah. it because Warner asked me to, and it did so well, it became the number one movie on Netflix in 2020 for three weeks straight in the world. It was called The California Christmas. So we did six more after that. That's the movie you shot in the barn in Petaluma. You basically created a soundstage there. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. So it was what I said at the top, and I'm not sure if we were recording yet, but basically COVID had hit. Everybody was scared. I said, you know what, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to hire, um, we're going to hire Josh and Lauren Swickard, who had met on my rodeo movie Rope on, that, that's on Netflix now. That was about a, a, a rodeo coming to a town and not being really, you know, being mistreated. Uh, and um, the star Josh Swickard met his future wife, Lauren York, on that set. They fell in love in real life. They had their first kiss on camera. You can see it. The kiss in rope is their first kiss. Um, it's the second take of the first kiss. And, um, and uh, they felt they got married afterwards. They just welcomed their second child earlier this year. So I said, you know what? You two aren't going to be afraid to be together because everybody was scared to do intimate scenes or be close to each other. Remember, COVID was very scary. It's not the same thing now. But three years back, right now, 2020, people were afraid to go outside and see their own shadow. So um, so I said, you guys can be the two leads. You live together. You're not afraid to be together. You, have, you know, that's that. And I said, I'll play the butler. Hmm. So, so, like, we're all confined. We'll build a soundstage on the range. We built this huge barn, basically. And um, uh, we'll, we'll shoot in there. And we'll shoot at Larry Peters Ranch, my other uh, friend that's a high net worth individual in Warner in, uh, in Petaluma that has a ton of property there. I said, we use these two ranches. He's at the dairy. Mine is at the regular, regular range. And I said, um, we, we have to rent the whole fourth floor out of the Sheraton Hotel for the crew that was coming in. We were bringing, we were bringing them food. We even had a COVID scare. But that allowed us to do this movie. You're going to laugh, Tim. It's 13 actors in three weeks. That's it. It was the tightest, lightest, lowest budget movie we've ever done. And it went bonkers because the competition wasn't there. And, it was, and these guys did a really good job. And it became so well that Netflix immediately ordered three more. And then our, our, our friends here, we're Warner Brothers here. Uh, I don't know if you know the connection, but Warner Brothers and or your few listeners do. Warner Brothers and HBO Max are the same company. So they said, hey, we just we just loaned you to them. You need to come back to us now. So then they ordered three. So we did three HBO Max movies last year. So we did, we've done seven Christmas movies in a row, four for Netflix, three, three for Max. And all but one have reached the number one spot. And that one other one reached the number two spot. So we've had six number one Christmas movies and one number two. So, and then we just finished our new one, A Wine Country Christmas, which we haven't determined the outlet yet for, but so that'll be, that'll be one more. So, uh, but I think we're going to take a break from Christmas for a minute. We're going to go back into some of the other fun stuff and some of the racing stuff and uh, more heartfelt stuff and series too. Yeah. I saw in your interview with Matt Donnelly at Variety that you're not even that big on Christmas. You kind of celebrate Christmas, but. Listen, coming to America as an Iranian, there's no, we didn't know about Christmas. I mean, there's a movie there called My First Christmas that I I might do, uh, you can laugh, um, I might do because it's just so silly. The, the things I learned as a kid in America to, um, you know, try to figure out what Christmas is, um, we came out, give me one second, I'll find this for you here. You'll laugh, or maybe you'll laugh. Um, <laughs> It's, it's this one here. My first Christmas. And that's me trying to figure out what all this Christmas was about. You know, and, um, uh, it's, it's a story that I might do like another kid one, kind of like our Christmas mystery for HBO Max where it was, you know, really, you know, children driven. But um, yeah, we didn't celebrate Christmas. Like uh, one year, my parents got me a Christmas tree, but then we didn't even decorate it or water it. It was just sat there. We'd have no presents under it because we didn't know what it was. But the next year, the present was we were at like a thrifty drugstore. Like, what do you want? I'm like, I'll, I'll take this. And that was my Christmas gift because you don't know. And everybody had different, all my friends had different, their families all had different traditions. So it's just bonkers. So our movies, they're, they're Christmas movies, but they're very Christmas adjacent. They're like, you know, like they're, they happen to be around Christmas, but they're not like, you know, it's not a miracle happens. And all of a sudden the, it's like, it's like, there's a story that deadlines at Christmas, or there's a story that, you know, revolves around, it couldn't be said anywhere. Actually, one of the Netflix movies they asked, can you not make it Christmas and make it in summer? So we actually switched it for them. So yeah, they're, they're not super Christmassy, but I think 
the spirit of Christmas is there and the love and the family and the feel good They're, They all got that. And, and if you, I don't know, um, Tim, if you've seen any of our Christmas movies, but like, if you see a Hollywood Christmas, it's a movie within a movie, right, you know, right. Shaggy and Warner brothers, our movies are a little more, a uh, little smarter than your regular Christmas movies. They're a little different. Some are a little meta, some are a little, they're not, they're not your typical, uh, you know, uh, bake cookies and save the bakery because the bad landlord's going to come get it. Actually, in Hollywood Christmas, that's the movie within the movie. We're actually making fun of a traditional Christmas movie. Like the story of the movie is the landlord's taking the bakery, but then like the director of the movie actually falls in love with the network executive. So it's a total different. And another cool thing that you guys, you, you and your uh, viewers, readers, uh, listeners might like is um, diversity and equity and inclusion has always been a part of our stuff. I want to say on accident, just organically. I mean, the first five movies we did had female leads. The next two had black leads. The next two had Middle Eastern leads. So I feel really proud of that because it was something we were doing before it was trendy, before it was fashionable. Or, you know, there's no checklist then. When we started back in 2015, 14, 15, thinking of these ideas, we didn't go at it like, oh, we need to be. So even in our in our demo reel, our, our, our company demo reel, which we could send you and you could watch, inclusion in front and behind the camera is very important almost every second uh uh every movie has like a female producer on the lead there's a lot of female writers and so we try to do that which kind of lends itself to knowing like we were in the right place because people go like wow how have we done 23 movies in a series and like you know so short and how did you come out of nowhere doing this we don't really drink the hollywood kool-aid we do things our, our way whether it's max or netflix wanting to order films or us independently financing, you know, 15 or 16 of them through high net worth individuals or myself financing some. We kind of do things our own way. We're, we're a very cost-effective, efficient, you know, they, they say we punch above our weight class. Because you see our movies and you compare the budget, you're like, wow, how did you do that? And we still have, you know, we have Brooke Shield, we have Grace Atkins, and like I said, Dennis Craig, Ludacris. We have names that people recognize and yeah. still bringing them in at a good price point. And, and they're just killing it on upon release. They're doing really well. So, you know, and big thanks to everybody at Warner Brothers too, because they've been very aware and supportive from, from Kevin Sujahara, the former CEO that brought us here, which by the way, happened to be born and raised in Petaluma. <laughs> Perfect. That, and I didn't even know that until we were shooting American Wrestler and John Voight called him for me and was like, oh, hey, you should meet this kid. He's doing a bunch of movies in your hometown. And that's what started. That's what opened the door for us to be at Warner Brothers since uh, 2016. Really? Just yeah, a, he, a personal he, connection between John Voight and Kevin Sierra. Yeah, we were driving home. John wanted to drive home. One of my had this fancy Aston Martin at that time. He's like, can you give me a ride back to the hotel? I said, sure. We're leaving Tomales High School, going down the beautiful, windy uh, hills of Petaluma. And um, he goes, oh, by the way, there's a executive that works here. That works at Warner Brothers. It's from here, I think. I said, oh, who? And he gave me his name. And I looked him up. I'm like, not an executive. This is the executive, the CEO. He goes, yeah, let me call for you. Right there in the car, we're driving. He calls and goes, hey, you know, you should meet this kid and and uh two months later we're on the set of running wild the the, the rodeo sharon stone movie and um uh we get a call and luckily for it was in town and uh it's the only time i've ever been on a private jet and we just jumped on the plane came here to warner brothers from northern Cap. we were in napa actually we we're in Petaluma. We we're shooting in napa came here had the meeting with uh the executives here kevin and and uh steven spira and uh they said what do you want what do you want to do and they saw our movie and they loved it and we've had production offices here since so six seven years now seems so kind of by very quick you know a lot of the projects you've worked on the, st the stuff that's uh, the aspects of america that you're celebrating um mm -hmm. like you mentioned the trump stuff america is super divided right now and people like me who are like 10th generation americans um sometimes forget all of the good stuff we have and the freedoms that we have i mean particularly compared to a place like iran um, but lots of other places too. I mean, my in-laws are all Irish and they talk constantly about how many more, we think of Ireland as a pretty free place, um, but they talk about how much more opportunity there is in the U.S. than there. Um, does it sort of take an outside perspective for people to understand that? Like, I think, I think Americans have sort of forgotten that and I'm not coming at this from like a MAGA perspective or like a right-wing perspective. I just genuinely feel like a lot of we complain about America all the time, which is our right as Americans, but um, you should visit any other country. You're, you're absolutely right. I think you just nailed it on the head. Like, that's the issue. And I'm guilty of it, too, in certain areas. Like, like um, those awards I just showed you over there for erasing, 
the first award literally was like sitting on my pillow that night. Hmm. The 18th award, I didn't even pick up. I said, can you please just mail it to us? <laughs> so what, what happened? You get used to it. You know what I mean? Like whether you have a fancy new Ferrari you're driving, the first week it's great. The second week it's kind of great. Three years later, eh, right? So I think it's human nature. So I don't want to put blame on any of my American friends or colleagues or you know family. But when you get used to something, you get used to it. And if you don't humble yourself or you don't go to go just go live somewhere else for a minute that doesn't have this. Go to any third world country because like you know the the top one percent of the world makes like thirty thousand a year. I'm like remember that. Like you can literally go to any state in America. Get a job at like any McDonald's restaurant and at least live. Pay your rent, have a roof, have hot water. Like, I'm not saying you're driving a Ferrari, but like, you know, like you can't even do that. In I, don't, I don't think people understand like countries where there is absolutely no economic, and it's not perfect here by any stretch, but there's just absolutely no economic change. Like, you are mm -hmm. born into whatever your parents did and you're doing the same thing. And yeah, which could be nothing. <laughs> which could be no job. So, so you're totally right. So that it's, so that's why you see a lot of immigrants, but not, I'm not just saying myself, but and immigrants that come with that, they're hustlers, they're grinders, they're fighters, because they know what it's like to be starving. They know what it's like to not be, be cold at night. I mean, Americans don't. And some of them get complacent and have a lot of people I know that are just really brilliant, smart people, but they just don't want to work as hard. Or they don't want to roll up their sleeves and get dirty. Like I used to, I mean, I would go to junkyards at, and, and take parts off cars, cut my hands, this, that, fall asleep under the car because I was so tired, you know, just to make a buck and, and flip an old, you know, Chevy or an old wheel or something that I would restore like an old hot rod. And that drive is kind of like that kind of never give up. It's also very synonymous with wrestling. So I got thrown in at double because wrestling is such a tough sport. And our coach used to say, uh, uh, God rest his soul. Um, uh, he said, if you can do a wrestling season without giving up, you don't quit win or lose. You're going to be make, you can make it in life. Cause wrestling, I don't know if you ever wrestled him, but it's hard. It is. It's like, you're questioning, why am I doing this? It's painful. It's only six minutes. And you feel like a truck ran over you. Put it this way. Any sport that's only six minutes seems must be kind of aggressive, right? Cause it's only six minutes. So, um, that's the max it can be. But um, I think you combine that the, the drive of an immigrant, knowing what it's like, knowing what hunger is like, knowing what difficulty is with, oh, there's a golden goose. Wait a minute. I can do this and buy a house and buy a car and this and that. And this. Okay. And it's not just about the money, but it's also about, it's about what the money can offer you, the, the safety, the security that, you know, you can live. So it is true. I think, I think a lot of Americans, again, like you said, it's not perfect by any means. But it's the most perfect place that I'd like to be in this world, you know. And uh, yes, there's ups and downs, and people have arguments for different countries, and I'm sure they're valid, you know, in Europe or Canada or something with healthcare and this and that. But but in America, you, you you if you're a good person, you work hard, you're aware of your surroundings, you're opportunistic in a healthy, positive way, not taking advantage of anybody. It's like before us, you say, it costs nothing to be kind, and you just you have the opportunities here. You can grow, you can grow. It might come overnight, it might come in 10 years, but everybody can. And there's programs out there. So yeah, I, I believe in, I believe in a lot of, unfortunately, people that are born into this don't really take advantage of it or really appreciate it is a better word, not take advantage of it. But they don't appreciate the American dream. And that's really what we're all about. We're all about, you know, I hate to say a lot of movies are 80s. They're like, remember the Titans is kind of our, you know, like platform movie you know, um, action, feel good, do the right thing with diversity. That's kind of who we are. So, so that all leads into America's not perfect. There's a lot of bad history here, but, but yeah. we can and have it, this conversation freely and nobody's going to get us in trouble. You know, so We don't have to worry about anything we're saying. I mean, if you haven't been to China, you don't understand what it feels like. You mm -hmm. are, you may be being watched. Yeah, and exactly. I'm not paranoid to say that. I mean, you may really... Mm -hmm. Being monitored and there's places like north korea and iran that you can't even go to <laughs> you know that's, that's even yeah. worse than that i mean china i think has one little sliver of hope but these other places you're literally a prisoner yeah oh, prisoner. yeah yeah i've never been to china so i don't know but uh, yeah you're, you're totally right you know and we get to make these movies you know it's fun to make these movies and you know get tell stories like i couldn't tell american wrestler in iran you know it's not a 
very pro-Iran movie. So like I'm here and I'm not going back to Iran. So it's a, you know, I can have a little, that freedom of speech is, is a lot of just freedom in general. Like, you know, you can't go talk to a girl on the street in, in another country. Like not, it's weird, you know, just like, you know, like think about that. Can we talk about the TV show? Sure, let's do it. Why go into TV? What are the themes about it that you liked? Um, why why this show? So when we were shooting a California Christmas on the ranch, we were noticing how like it was a very upstairs downstairs kind of living, and we saw these like uh, these Mexican kids playing with their little fake cow. They were rodeo. You know, they were doing a little rope on it, lassoing it. And myself and uh, Lauren uh, Swickard, we were like, would it be a cool story to kind of tell this? kind of country living, but like have the two different upstairs, downstairs. And and then we kept thinking about it and and uh, we came up with, the, with, with this great idea. Uh, we brought in Ava Redke, another one of our uh, female producers here. And we created the show that's kind of like Yellowstone, but with a Latin infusion. And it's got so like, like 20, maybe 30% in Spanish actually. So it's really cool. It's kind of bilingual almost. And um and it and and we intertwined like a uh, a love affair like Romeo and Juliet kind of forbidden love affair with the Spanish boy Spanish speaking boy and the and the American girl if you've seen the trailer you can see Madison Lawler and Javier um, Bolanos play the, the couple so little soap opera a little dramatic but very much about how how these these hardworking uh, Mexican immigrants often uh, not unpapered if you will whatever the right word is to say. And, and these Americans, how do they get along? Not necessarily in a bad way, not necessarily a good way, because we interviewed a lot of people, a lot of real farmers on both sides of the spectrum. And you couldn't believe how many of the Mexican immigrants were like beyond thrilled that, that sure. they got these jobs and these big, big ranch farmer owners literally paid for their kids to go through college. And they have $200,000 of their savings. They never thought ever they would even see $200,000. But like we just talked about, they came here, they worked hard, they owned homes. Kids have gone through school. They've completely changed the uh, generational wealth of their family trajectory from wherever they came from. Then others weren't so happy. Others were thinking they were getting taken advantage of, just like in everything. So we thought that that story would be a great story to tell, just to put it out there. No judgment on it, but let people discuss it. Let people talk about, oh, look at these different things. And then when we're thinking of the name, it's funny enough because uh, we were driving by Petaluma, my old high school. And it has nothing to do with the high school, but the high school is called Casa Grande. <laughs> I was like, we should call it Casa Grande because everybody's dream was to live in the big house. It's the big house. Everybody wants that, wants to grow and achieve and, and accumulate. So so we called it Casa Grande. And I think it's just the right name because forget my history with the high school, but um, it's it's like the, it's like every American still knows what it means. You know, it's just... It's, 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 it's Spanish, fully Spanish. Casa Grande is not English, but it's, right? Could you think of anything more in Spanish that's that's more English than Casa Grande? Like, everybody knows. <laughs> so, you know, everybody knows Casa. Everybody knows Grande from Starbucks or whatever. So, like, everybody knows it means big. So, we just got the big house. And then, luckily, you know, Yellowstone has gone through the roof. And we're like, oh, this is great. Can we shot this at the end of 20, early 21? So, it's been a, a couple of years in the making. So, um and, you know, that that's the story of it. And it's the family, the creative is the story about the Clarkman family. And um, they're the landowners, but they've gone through a lot of personal difficulty. And the patriarch, the, 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 the parents are a little, you know, hard, a little icy, a little hard, a little cold American style, gone through a lot. There's some forbidden love uh, in their family that has led to offsprings. I don't want to give up anything, away, but, you know, I don't want to give any spoilers. And then there's the love affair we mentioned and, and a lot of protection and a lot of fear, but also a lot of love and passion. There's some action in it. And it's, it's really beautifully shot. Uh, we had our director was Argentinian award-winning director. I really felt that uh, myself, Lauren and Ava, we all felt that we should have a female director. So we found uh, Gabriello Tagliarini, uh, Gabo, as we call her, Gabriella, but we call her Gabo. So Gabo did a great job directing it. We had a killer DP, Gigi, our writers, Michael Cruz, Alex Renarvello. Um, uh, we had Luis Chavez. We had real consultants on it to make sure, you know, we had Spanish, different, actually different Latin American influences to make sure that we got it right. Because one thing with our movies in the past is we always tackle touchy subjects. And we want to make sure we do them right. We don't yeah. want to judge on them. We want to open up the conversations on them. So it's really important we got that right. But, you know, we pushed it. It's fun. I, I think we'll like it. We got a great cast. You know, we got a... 
John Piper Ferguson, Christina Moore, Madison Lawler, uh, Christian James, that's now on the CW show All American. And then you got Kate Mancy as the other sister. And then on the Spanish side, you got uh, Lauren Escondon and Daniel Mora and Javier Bolinos and uh, uh, Karen, just awesome. Raquel Dominguez, like you got this killer cast. If you see that, have you seen the poster? It's oh, really yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, Warner just Warner designed the poster for us. We're really proud of it. We're just like, you can see it growing from the ground in the field. And you see the base and the foundation is Latin and smaller, but the big top is white. It's like, that's very, very reflective of the story of what we're thinking. Like these guys are the top of the food chain. They're bigger, they're more prominent, but the base and the foundation of this growing stock out of the earth is from, you know, a Latin, Latin base, which is kind of how those farms are in, those ranches are in. That's the, up, that's the upstairs downstairs theme. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. fascinating. It's very Downton Abbey-esque, but today. <laughs> you you have another project that I'm super interested in. You have the rights to a story about the creation of the Scorpion song, Wind of Change. Um, um, yes, I don't have the, officially the rights. I just have been working with the band for years, and we have actually here the script right here. We've come up with a couple different versions of the script, but yeah, Wind of Change, yep. How did you meet the Scorpions? How did that come about? What does that song mean to you? I mean, obviously that's a song about throwing off the shackles of repression um, mm -hmm. and sort of celebration of, of freedom of speech and freedom of expression. How did that happen? It was, the, it, was the, it was the theme song of the fall of the Berlin Wall and communism in, in 91. So what happened is coming to America, um, into that small town, one of the first bands I was introduced to through my older brothers and their friends was the Scorpions. And the reason I actually liked them more than um, uh, other others were their stories and the lyrics and the songs and, and the classical backdrop um, resonated with me because there's one big piece of my life I forgot to mention that goes back historically. I don't know if you did, if you, if it's, if you did the research and you saw it, but my mother was a very, very prominent poet and lyricist. She wrote the, like, biggest songs of the Iranians in the seventies and eighties. Like she was the, if you know who Diane Warren is, she was, she wrote like the songs of the Michael Jacksons and the Madonnas in the eighties. She actually wrote one of the national anthems of, of Iran that like a group of singers sang right during the, right before the revolution to try to not have the revolution happen. But um, uh, so I was always in recording studios and stuff growing up with kind of like this Iranian music with the, with the uh, um, classical background. So the Scorpions, unlike the rock bands in America, based out of like rhythm and blues and i learned this from rudolph shanker the uh the founder of the scorpions um he, he basically said we're built we're classically trained we're classical rockers we're not r&b rockers so even though i loved motley Crue, van halen and all those 80s were big heavy metal rock bands because that's when i was a you know young kid um uh, they were different and i think that clicked with me plus their lyrics were like you had these lyrics that were just like very very sentimental and it was like it just stuck and it got me through all those hard time of the eighties and still loved them into the nineties. And then when we started move, making movies, I was like, you know what, on the movie dirt, I'd love to put Rocky like a hurricane, you know, just a hard, fast rock song. So we got a chance through our friends uh, at Werner here to go meet them in Vegas. And I went there and I met with backstage, met with Rudolf Schenker. I have a picture of him. He signed my first concert ticket ever, which was from 1988 to them. I actually have it right here. Yeah. I did that to talk about this. Um, just have to talk about this not too long ago, but I'll show you. Like, this was uh, in seventh grade. I had my, uh, I had my seventh year yearbook, and we were just pitching this to, to a, a, a network right now. And I played, we played the Scorpions in the air band. Oh my gosh. We won first place. Yeah, wow. right there. yeah. So, um, so, uh, <laughs> so no, no one can say what's your personal connection to this material. When this album came out, Love It First Thing with this sexy cover is like a you know, 10 year old. Right. What the hell is this going on? <laughs> so, um, so we went there and uh, Rudolph liked this. We definitely couldn't afford the song, but he gave it to us at such a great rate. He goes, Because I like you, it's about chemistry, nothing's about money, it's about what you love. And he gave us that song, and that started the relationship. And I kept, we went back and forth a bunch for a few years. And um, finally, we got the band. Uh, uh, we've seen them a few times through the years, backstage. And then they came to Warner Brothers last year, gave them a tour. And funny enough, there's a big piece of the Berlin Wall here on display at Warner Brothers. Yeah. Their whole thing was, 
Our fathers brought tanks, we bring guitars to bridge the gaps that their history of German, the World War II and all the Nazis and the Hitler and the bad stuff, that they wanted to sing in English, they wanted to play rock and roll, but for love and brotherhood. And they went through hell trying to put a band together, write Scorpions with the sea, sing in English, it was unheard of. You know what I mean? The stuff they had to do to get to where they are, but the whole goal was to play on the other side of the wall, to play in Russia, which ultimately happened. They had huge hits right in the middle of their biggest spike for like blackout. House man loses his voice, the old tree stuff. And they're like, oh my God, they say you have to go on without us. But they're like, no, we won't. And they wait, surgery, surgeries against the lock. They get back together. They have their biggest hits. Blackout, Love It First Thing albums come out in the mid 80s. Get invited to uh, Moscow. Uh, I, I don't want to tell the whole movie away, but like they do this huge Moscow music uh, peace festival with big bands. And while the other bands go out and party afterwards, House Man gets this idea and starts whistling a song on the way home writes wind of change which is all about wind of change which is really what we need right now too you know uh, so so and then they got an invitation to go meet mikhail gorbachev and i think it's either two or three weeks after that meeting the ussr dissolved so okay. it's very poignant right now with what's going on in the world you've heard the podcast or at least have heard of the podcast that claims that the cia wrote wind of change and like gave it to klaus absolutely <laughs> We'll touch, we'll touch into that. Exciting, but not true, but <laughs> exciting. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the best theories ever. Like it doesn't really, I don't feel like anybody at the CIA is that good at writing songs, but maybe, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cause I asked them, I was like, is there any chance they know? I'm like, they're like, you know, cause yeah. So uh, uh, if there is, that person sure. should leave, that person should leave the CIA and join a record label. But uh, yeah. And you know, they tried to do the whistling at the beginning of the song. Um, if you if you remember the song, the, the little the intros with the whistle, and they tried to do it in different instruments and they couldn't really get it right. So they just said, we'll just stick with the whistle, you know? And coincidentally enough, Tim, uh, the first draft of the script was turned in about a few weeks ago. And um, that same day it was turned in, I went onto YouTube and when the change hit 1 billion views, the one one link, like one, yeah. So I was like, this is cool. Now we have to find a home for it. And I, I officially don't, there's no, nothing contracted her officially but i'm the only one working on it and I'm the only one that's that been really i appreciate the band i respect the band they're working with us hand in hand they're on a world tour now in their early 70s they're still rocking they just started south america they're on like another world tour so they're just killing million albums sold five thousand concerts in 80 countries 200 platinum albums like or, uh, golden platinum albums you're like what the but they're they're built in audience is wicked for just the business of movies you know what i mean that's great but the message i think will really click with the gen z's because a lot of our company here they don't, they're not my age they don't like the scorpions but when they hear the message and they learn that they're trying to use this music they're like the anti-rock rock band it's not just about tna and drugs and girls and no no these guys are trying to figure out how to like bridge countries and make you know, that's why they're so big universal you know so very excited about that but it's a that's a, it's a long endeavor it's not a not a thing coming out made first like got to go it's so funny because if you like grew up with the scorpions they're the opposite of that they like seem like hard partying and like they seem like they're all about like you know girls groupies whatever mm -hmm. and then 1989 it becomes like oh this is like the most serious group Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's funny. Very funny. Well, and they had to do that to become popular. You know what I mean? They had to, you know, uh, one of the stories is they had to like call man, call Europe and London with like fake accents because nobody would hire a German band. Mm -hmm. And they called us themselves, their own managers, like, oh, we're representing. And when they would get there, they wouldn't talk because they wouldn't want to have people hear a German accent. So, so they, you know, you had to buy in the big hair and the spandex and the leather studs of the 80s because everybody who wasn't doing it, right? Motley Crue, Van Halen, all the biggest bands were doing that. But yeah, if, you, if, if they're still going 55 years strong, three brothers and uh, three friends that became brothers never gave up. And they're just the nicest, most normal people. But uh, <laughs> they did what they had to do. And they're still, I mean, who rocks in their 70s sold out? I saw them last year at the Forum here in LA and sold out. You're like, what the heck? It's bonkers, yeah. Wow. And the Gen Z's are in the audience now. Because they like the whole, what is it? Greta Thunberg, I forgot to say the last name right. Like all these socially aware you know, people that worried about life and what it means in the world and environment. It's like, that's what window change is. Like their scorpions are this, again, you like the, you know, your, your kids and grandkids of Nazis, basically, you know, trying to 
save the world and love and brotherhood and hope. It's it's so cool, you know what I mean? It's not it's not Motley Crue's dirt where Ozzy Osbourne licking urine off the you know uh, the swimming pool. If you've seen that movie, you know what I mean. The 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 Motley Crue movie. It's not that. It's more it's more Bohemian Rhapsody than than dirt. Oh, uh, that's cool. Are you open for pitches? And if so, what do you look for? Like what sort of projects? It seems like you generate a lot of material from within. Yeah. Um, from your own oh, life. Exclusively, yeah. But we're totally open. There's been a few. The one we just finished, Wine Country Christmas, came to us. We're kind of across the board. We've been doing our first horror movie now. So mm-hmm. we are expanding into series, into horror. Um, really, where if, if uh, where I don't like, I'll tell you what I don't like. We're open to everything, but what I don't like is a story that's been around town forever that everybody passed on. That's a no-no. Don't waste your time bringing it to us. The other one is if it's got... 42 producers attached and 12 writers and there's just legal bullshit and paperwork that's just never going to have it made or it's already two three million dollars in the hole don't waste your time because even if i love it it's a pick life is short we only have i don't care if you're elon musk or uh, this dude like you only have you know uh 24 hours in a day so you don't want to waste your time on stuff that can't happen you know but we're open we, we love we love action we love feel good we love thrillers. We love drama. Again, we're getting into horror. I'd get more into like like um, exorcist style horror, not just not just you know like blood and guts kind of horror um, uh, series ideas. We actually are taking like a couple of our American wrestler and Lady Driver. We're gonna develop those to spin those off into series as well. Um, but we're open. Yeah, if anybody has any ideas, you know, we reread scripts and pitch ma- and, and pitch materials all the time. It's kind of part of our whole development side. So. You know, let us know. Uh, I'd love to, yeah, you got Janelle's email or, or Kelly's email. We can connect it. And yeah, if you have any ideas yourself or your friends, family, or viewers, whatever. No, not me. But I mean, just for readers, for the general population hearing this, thinking mm-hmm. that that makes sense to you. And I, on the one hand, there's something to be said for people tracking down, uh, figuring out how to get things on your desk themselves. Um, showing that they're capable of doing that is one way. Of- just go to our website. There's a contact us on your website. Send an email to the website. We get them. Oh, cool. That's great. Fantastic. And this world, you know, the, we like diverse voices. We like news stories. We like news storytellers. Um, there's a lot of cool stuff happening um, that will come out in the summer that, that that people will like. So uh, I'm not allowed to talk about it now. It's a little early. But, yeah, I think we're very, very open to the young, young, younger generation and, uh, you know, uh, different point of views. Very cool. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been a whirlwind. Hey, thanks, man. Thank you so much.